Hi, everybody. Welcome to Surfacing the Meaning in the Story, a podcast produced by the Mental Health Association of Westchester. I'm Jenna. And I'm Dustin. And we have a special guest with us here today who is going to share his story. But not only that, sadly, sadly, Dustin is going to be (laughs) stepping away from the podcast for a few months for a very good reason. Do you want to tell us more about that, Dustin? I am taking paternity leave to uh, babysit my uh, daughter. So a a whole different type of uh, work, which I have a sneaking suspicion will be way harder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that is true, <laughs> but a very just as rewarding, maybe <laughs> probably more rewarding. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep telling myself that when she's not sleeping ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So many cuddles. <laughs> I am really going to miss you. I can't say that enough. I think I've said it probably a thousand times since we started talking about this, but we will look forward to having you back. And if you notice that the podcast doesn't sound quite as good as it used to. Well, sorry, but you know, Dustin's our editing master and we're going to try to keep up. But on the bright side, I'm really excited to have Dylan Brown, who also works at MHA, and he is going to be joining me to co-host some of our episodes coming up. And so not only that, he's joining us today to introduce himself, but also to share a bit of his story so that We'll get to know the the man behind the mic a little bit as he comes on and, and joins me in the next few months. So welcome, Dylan. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be a part of this. Yeah. So tell us a little about yourself. Okay. Um, so I'll start with right now. Um, I'm the coordinator of peer and recovery services for MHA Westchester. Um, mostly that involves running a program called the Sterling Community Center, um, which a number of adults dealing with different mental health diagnosis can use for various reasons. It's an open space for people to come to throughout the day. It offers various types of support. That's me today. (laughs) Okay. And so now we're going to dive in a little bit to your story leading up to that. And we never, we, this is a little different because usually, uh, you know, our pod, when we're doing the podcast, we're not necessarily, you know, jumping right in in that way. Dustin and I will give a little intro and then we start things. So we can't start an episode though. And I'm going to throw it to you, Dustin, because this will be your last time for a while, but we can't start an episode without saying. Let's get into it. (laughs) Love it. Right. So Dylan, we heard a little bit about what you do now, which is really cool. And I'm sure we'll talk more about what that means and what it looks like later on. But why don't you tell us a little bit about you, who you were before all all this, before you got here? Okay. Um, So before I came to MHA, I was a social work student finishing my master's at Fordham University. That was kind of a long path for me that I started very young, actually. Um, when I was in first grade, I had this teacher. Um, I don't know, we didn't usually get along so well. And when we weren't getting along, she would drag me around the classroom by my wrist. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> Where did you grow up, Dylan? 
I actually, I went to Edgemont School District. So, I mean, a school yeah. district really yes, known <laughs> for its academics, but this teacher had no patience for me. She was new. Um, and, you know, you're in first grade and you're having trouble with a teacher and the other students aren't. So I didn't see it as the teacher's fault. I didn't see it as her problem. I saw it as my problem. I was mm-hmm. a bad kid. I didn't know how to behave. I couldn't sit in my chair. And I kind of understood why the teacher had such an issue with me. My parents hearing these stories didn't see it the same way. You know, so they wrote the school district and the school district basically said the same thing I did, which is your son is tremendously disruptive. He cannot sit in a chair. He's not capable of finishing this lesson. He will not write cat, bat, hat, mat. You know, he refuses to sit there and write that 800 times. My mother took me to a neurologist basically to get a letter for the school that also led us down the rabbit hole of diagnosis. The psychologist, you know, really the neurologist rather, I remember at the time it had to be a neurologist because of my age, you know, wrote the school letter kind of saying this wasn't appropriate. The teacher had to stop. She revved up her behavior from there. I don't remember ever getting better, but at least I felt like she was in the wrong I got the label of ADHD, um, which later in my life was updated to autism. But that was my first encounter with this idea that there could be a label or some word, or I had to go talk to someone about what I was dealing with in school. By the end of the next year, you know, I was prescribed um, psychostimulant medication to help me, you know, quote unquote, deal with what was going on in school. From my perspective, you know, what was going on in school was I didn't want to sit in that chair and write Bad Cat Hat Matt, and I had to. So, you know, we weren't going to get along. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what an experience. And I can't believe you remember in first grade how that experience of going to the doctor and, you know, hearing the doctor say, hey, this has to stop, and writing a, a letter of recommendation of this behavior has to stop, not yours, but the adult in your life who you had thought was the, you know, well, was the authority figure, right? Who you felt like, okay, well, if they're reacting to me in this way, it must be my problem to then remember how that, that shifted your mindset at such an early age. That must've been pretty pivotal for you to remember that. No, because he (laughs) he may have thought it was the teacher's problem, but he thought I had to fix it. You know, he gave me this weird thing to sit on that was supposed to make me sit still. At the end of the day, Uh, I still had to comply. And the fact that I couldn't, still made me, you know, not fit with the world as a whole. And I, I thought he was the silliest man I'd ever met. I mean, he believed anything I said, you know, <laughs> he, he asked these absurd questions of a first grader. Then I told these long yarns that my parents would be sitting there being like, no, no, that, that, that nonsense. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh my God, that's very strange. You, know? <laughs> you were toying with him. <laughs> He'd ask these questions. I'd be like, I have no idea what he wants me to say. So I'd make up a long story. Okay. So it sounds like that started a a pattern or a journey for you in school of always sort of having this thing that you had to compensate for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. It was my first experience of, and I I guess kindergarten too, but they don't care as much in kindergarten. It was my first experience of, I'm just, you know, I struggle in this environment kind of. Right. And looking around you and seeing, I don't really see anybody else who's having the same struggle. It sounds like. No, definitely Uh, not. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, at that age, you were, you were thinking of it in terms of, okay, well, I'm the issue here. I'm the problem. So how did that impact then how you moved through the rest of your school years with that mindset? So it's interesting. Um, When I think back, that grade, first grade, is incredibly distinct in my memory. Um, I can remember all the times I got myself in trouble. I can remember exactly what I was doing, what I was thinking. uh, Fast forward to 
coming onto the medication. And the next year and a half is an absolute blur. I don't really remember my teachers. I don't remember the classroom. I don't remember if I had conflict with the, the school. I don't remember any of it. Um, so I tend to think that perhaps some combination of my age, the medication I was on, my memory encoding of that time is not very good. Yeah. Okay. So what about after that? It never really improved much. Um, mm-hmm. You know, elementary school, I was always kind of that quote unquote problem student, not really able to focus, always looking for the changing classes. 45 minute periods were, you know, abject torture. As we got further into actual material, fifth, sixth grade, I could at least focus in like social studies, math, maybe not so much, but things that interest me all of a sudden, it was like, hmm, I can sit here and listen to talk, someone talk about something I care about. We were now much further from the back cat hat mat repetition games that I'm like, yeah. I know how to spell things with an AT ending. I just have to keep putting a different symbol in front of them. Yeah. Doing it 800 times isn't going to reinforce that for me. <laughs> I got it. So you really needed to be stimulated and challenged it sounds like to be engaged, which I think is pretty normal. I mean, yeah, most kids do, right? Need to be challenged appropriately. If you're either understimulated or, you know, think something is too challenging, it makes it a really unsatisfactory experience in school. And some kids benefit from teachers giving them positive reinforcement and, you know, the negative reinforcement, something they want to avoid. I didn't care about either. So it didn't matter if the teacher was happy with my worksheet, if it bored me, and it didn't matter if they were upset that I ran around the room, you know, neither really affected me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think, at least for those, I guess, up through fourth grade and saying things didn't really improve, it was kind of the same every year, didn't matter what style the teacher was. What was the impact of that on you as a developing child outside of the the school setting? So that. I could have tattooed the term not living up to your potential on my body. I mean, it's Mm. the way I understood myself. And for a very long time, this was just kind of the introduction of that experience. Every teacher, he's a nice kid. He's a really bright kid and he's not living up to his potential. And I mean, it was just carved into my brain. It's how I saw myself was that there was something wrong with me that prevented me from being the person, you know, I was quote unquote supposed to be. Right. So who did you think you were supposed to be? Whoever this this potential was, this unrealized, you know, something I had never seen, but everyone else saw in me. Okay, so you were buying into that then. Or did you have a different vision of yourself? Of No, this is who I'm supposed to be. And other people just aren't seeing it. No, I don't think my image of myself was quite that complex at the time. I mean, I. (laughs) Like I was in fourth grade, so. Yeah, I I would say even as far as sixth, I mean, I didn't start realizing how different my way of approaching the world was from a lot of my classmates until maybe ninth grade. Mm, Okay. So now you're talking about this in the context of how it started your journey to grad school and pursuing a social work career and all of that. So what is that leap there? Make that connection of how did that start to plant the seeds for you? So it took me to about seventh grade until I started binning my medication um, instead of taking them. You know, I would pretend to take it and throw it out because I had this realization that there were just huge swaths of my life that had gone by that I didn't feel like I was an active player. in. Um, mm-hmm. That I didn't feel like I was part of it. it. felt like I took this pill. I went to school. And by the time I came home, I was starting to remember what was happening again. But the whole school day was lost to you know, the come up, the medication, come down, then I'm back home. I'm kind of normal, but I didn't remember anything. So I took myself off that medication. 
And I started feeling normal again and like myself again. I started having friends again and a social life and all these things that for years had just been absolutely suspended in my world. And that made me question like, you know, that guy with all those degrees on the wall, you know, this fancy office and makes all that money. Did he have any idea what he was talking about all those years ago? Right. Fast forward to a couple of years later, one of my friends, my, my best friend, someone I considered, you know, like a brother, we grew up together. He was the first person to tolerate the way I could be, to take me out, to teach me what it meant to have fun. He was having some issues, went to a psychiatrist, was diagnosed as bipolar. Um, they prescribed him benzodiazepines. And at the time, I remember thinking like, once again, this just does not fit. He's so young. He's dealing with so much. Where does that fit in here? Three, uh, three days later, he drives him and his mother in a car. He falls asleep at the wheel of the car because of the medication. And he drives through a fence. They're okay. Thank God. But I'm sitting there being like, I was questioning this doctor three days ago. And then he drives through a fence. Yeah, really? So you're already starting to question the medical system at such a young age, given your own experience and then seeing that of your friend as well. So that's, that's kind of what started your desire to get into the mental health field then. On one hand, I had all these folks doing things kind of a somewhat questionable way. It didn't feel like they cared. And then on the other hand, we had the psychologist, not a school psychologist, actual doctorate level psychologist who worked in the school. Mm-hmm. who was just the most endearing, amazing man who made, you know, these strong relationships and partnerships with the same students that not a single other teacher spoke to or cared about. I mean, everyone you could list is like, oh, those are the real problem kids. Yeah. That was his band. And he walked around with these kids all day. And that was always an inspiration to me. You know, that was always something that was incredibly meaningful. And it was such a contrast to these folks like, here's a pill bottle, here's a pill bottle. Yeah. What you just said, I think is going to be the most powerful. Well, I I don't know what's to come, but that was so powerful. It was so simple. But what you said was this person took the time to connect, connect with these, with with these kids and make meaningful connections and relationships with them and seeing the power of that and the impact of that on you and, and your friends and other people who were receiving these labels and just sort of ostracized or yeah, given a pill. So, wow, powerful. Take note of that, people. Connection. <laughs> so that that told that showed you that there was another way. Yeah, it showed me the impact that one could have when they chose to. Um, and I'll, it was quite tragic, but I'll never forget in my junior year, Dr. Reed did pass. And I remember walking in, there was a teacher, one of the few that cared about the same students he did, who stood at the front to tell everyone what had happened because the school wasn't going to, interestingly. And I'll never forget seeing one of my friends fall to his knees, just sobbing. And of course, a painful moment, but one that spoke to this connection that he had established. My friend was adopted. He had a lot of trouble at home. I don't think there were that many people in his life. He would have fallen to his knees, sobbing of a genuine emotion about at that moment in his life. But this psychologist at the school was one of those people. And that was special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So take us on from there. So. I think at that point, I started feeling like I wanted to go into psychology, but it was probably more research, um, my interest at that point, because remember, I'm, you know, not a kid who's very good with people at this point in my life. I don't have a lot of relationships. You know, I'm, I'm really kind of a loner. So the idea of going into the side of the field that works with people is a little absurd for me at this <laughs> moment in my life. Um, but, you know, I go into AP Psych, which was one of the first 
higher level classes that I just absolutely excelled in. You know, it was never a struggle. I didn't have to spend time at home working on it. Just beginning to end, not a challenge for me. The teacher who had hated me as my eighth grade health teacher was now like obsessed with me and talking to me about going to be a psychologist like she was. Um, (laughs) And that was the first. No one had ever taken an interest in my future. Mm -hmm. I went to Edgemont with a bunch of people. They were going to go to Ivy Leagues. They were going to go on to, you know, huge things. And I was not one of those people. So at Edgemont, you know, you're either elite enough to matter or you're everybody else and you're on your own. And I was everybody else. So this was the first time someone felt like I mattered in any class at Edgemont. Mm -hmm. Right. So you were recognizing it. You felt engaged in the work. It was in line with what you thought you wanted to do. You were excelling at it. You were getting that positive feedback about it. So yeah, I mean, all of that is so encouraging as you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next. You're getting that internal and external motivation and, and feedback. Exactly. And that, that meant a lot. When I applied to school for college, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever want to let anyone down. So as much as that teacher had implored me to reach out to her, I didn't think I had any chance of getting into NYU. And I probably didn't. And I, the teacher was herself an interviewing counselor. So maybe she could have pulled some strings, but I'm not about that at this point in my life. I wasn't back then. So, you know, I didn't reach out and I just went about my own thing. I ended up going to a school called Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Easily one of the best things that happens to me because that's where this other component, where like, you know, I'm the shy kid, not good with people, don't get people. That's where that changes. I finally end up in therapy. Uh-huh. You know, this whole time I had a neurologist, but I don't think we'd ever call the one session a year we had therapy. Literally, yeah. he asked <laughs> questions. Uh, tell me about your friends. I made up 10 friends. Tell me about your social life. I made up a social life. You know, that was our <laughs> session. <laughs> so wait, you say you ended up in therapy, but what do you mean? Did you pursue that on your own to say, like, was it the first time you said, I want to do this or? No, the school what? said, based on the event you were involved in, which I'm not going to get into, if okay. you don't go to therapy, we're going to send you home and kick you Got it. Okay. So truly ended up there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I needed <laughs> okay. a therapist to sign something. So. <laughs> Got it. Okay. One thing leads to another. I went to the yeah, Howard Center um, where I ended up ah. in a group with a yeah. bunch of folks who were dealing with homelessness and a lot of other things I couldn't relate to. So I discontinued that group and I found this private therapist. First session's normal. Second session, he's like, you know, I'd like to meet you on Man- Mount Mansfield. I think it would be, you know, a really good experience. So he has me hike to the top of Mount Mansfield. It's a long hike. I mean, it's like three this hours. This is a cool you know? therapist. <laughs> he's a weird, weird guy. Uh, he's on the top of Mount Mansfield and it ends up being this like, I don't know if I'd call it a session now as a therapist, but at the time it felt like one, you know, this long multi-hour discussion on the top of a mountain. And then he referred me to someone else to actually do CBT therapy. But he really, in that moment, woke me up to a lot of things that I had been so closed off from that I had not considered ways of thinking about myself that, you know, when you're the odd man out and just trying to survive, you don't consider how you fit into a pattern. You don't consider what you can contribute to a community because you don't feel like part of the community. Hmm. And I think a big part of that session and of the, um, the relationship I had with that doctor was about realizing that I had a role and that I had my own volition, my own free will. So how did that change things? That's pretty powerful. <laughs> it, it allowed me to realize that just because everyone else thought I should be in the back room of a lab, 
writing numbers down in a book and not interacting with anyone didn't mean that was right. You know, I had spent a lifetime listening to other people tell me what I should do and all people nervous about my deficits. You know, all yeah. people who looked at me as someone who in another age would not have had a career, hmm. who at another time in history might have ended up in group living type of situation because, and, and it, it's different talking to me now, but knowing me as a kid, I had this academic intelligence, no question, but I had such an issue socially and functionally with other people that it was questionable if I'd ever be able to function in society. Well, yeah. I mean, you kept getting that question or that, that feedback, right. Of not living up to your potential, which made it seem as if there was something else beyond your reach that they couldn't even describe. Right. So how do you even reach there? (laughs) And people were quick to point out my, my pitfall in life. Mm -hmm. I had to achieve an office job because I could not do repetition. Mm-hmm. And that, that had proven true over a lifetime. Like right. I, I can't get through multi hours of repetitive work. The only jobs I really held down before working in the field were bartending and delivery because it's constant. It's intense. There's really no break yeah. and you go home. There's no yeah. barrier of standing there and staring at your hands, you know? Yeah, absolutely. To- I can relate to that too. I couldn't do that either. <laughs> not everyone can. But then it was like, will I be able to get the social skills, you know, learn the social skills to function in an office? And of course, when it was like a battle between me and everyone trying to help me, it seemed so unlikely. You know, when they were kind of trying to fix me by doing something, changing something, giving me a medication or a seat to sit in, it felt so hopeless. But when they invited me to change myself, when they said, look, you have thoughts, emotions, behaviors, we're going to stop looking at the emotions and behaviors and start looking at the thoughts, considering how these thoughts relate to your emotions, which relate to these behaviors that you've had over a lifetime. I said, really? My thoughts relate to my behaviors? And they said, yeah, they definitely do. You know, and let's see how they might. And I started realizing not only do they, but my own neurodiversity means they do it extremely. That because I'm so logical, there's a thought behind every emotion I can always find. And it's usually not all that pre-conscious, it's usually pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. So that must've been pretty pow- empowering experience to learn how to do that. It was like having my world broken and reformed. Wow. <laughs> so can you tell us about some of the changes that happened as a result of that? Sure. I, I think that was when I learned you know, how to build true relationships. I was able to look at some of my tendencies pulling away from people when they didn't behave the way I expected or wanted, um, not an unwillingness to ask, this feeling like I always had to know what was going on. You know, I started questioning those and being able to say, you know, no, it's okay to be unsure what's going on socially. It's okay to ask. A lot of people act like they know what they're going on, you know, is going on. That was the biggest thing, you know, realizing that, yes, okay, my social context was more limited. But a big part of that was that other folks just pretended they knew what was happening. And I couldn't do that. Once I learned to pretend to know what was happening, I could fit in in most situations. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, it's so interesting, right? Because you're, you're talking about neurodiversity, like you said, that in your mind and your brain, it works differently and look and, and feels different than for somebody else. And because that's maybe less common, people are trying to get you to think and, and act like someone who doesn't have that same way of thinking. And so 
I'm imagining that you could look back then on those childhood years and think through of, okay, what might someone have seen in you at that time that would have used, responded to you in a different way that would have used all that's unique and special about you to help you do that from an earlier age? Yeah, I think about that a lot. And I wish what someone had said to me was, you have these skills and you also have these challenges. So what we're going to aim for is something in the middle where the challenges modulate the skills. I wish they didn't expect me to be this A student, this top tier student in a hyper-competitive school environment because always falling short of that, and I did always fall short of that, was crushing to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took me such a long time, probably until grad school, where it's like a lot of these old things pushed me to maintain a it ended up being a three, nine, but it's like a four for a very long time GPA just to feel like, oh, finally, the number matches up to what these people used to push me to. I wish they had just said, both of these are true at the same time. They both Mm -hmm. exist and one doesn't cancel out the other. So the middle Mm -hmm. ground would be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. So then tell us, because I see so many parallels, but it's only because I know you and I know some people listening to this don't know you and what you do but how the work that you do now is such a parallel to your own life experience. Yeah, uh, definitely. And and one of the probably not so surprising secrets is when I came into my internship at the Sterling Community Center, it was one of those things where I was like, I'm going to go through two years in agency work, and then I'm going to leave agency work forever because my experience of organized therapy had always been so negative. And Mm -hmm. the only places I'd ever felt comfortable were the, the offices of private therapists. And that's what speaks to just the the profound experience I've had at MHA since starting here, because obviously now I've been here seven years. Um, I love it. I couldn't imagine being somewhere else. Um, Walking in (laughs) Jeremy and Cindy's first presentation, they talked about how we value people who have their own lived experience working here. Mm. I'm like, what? I, I spent years convincing myself that I would never say in an interview, I am on the autism spectrum. I've spent years thinking that no matter how good a sell I think I can make about that, I'm not going to do it because it's not appropriate in an interview. And here they are basically convincing me to walk into this interview for the internship and say that I am someone, you know, who is on the spectrum. And I did, and I felt really good about it. I got the internship. Sterling is a place where our recovery specialists are able to use their lived history Um, to help the people that we're working with. You know, I was able to reach in and say, you know, I really know what it feels like not to fit in, or I feel know what it feels like to feel so other, so external to your world that you can't relate to it, you know, but that feeling can pass. That's not eternal. That, you know, all of these other things that kind of, I've been in that hole and I know the way out Mm -hmm. rather than having to hide that. And of course, there are tons of folks in the clinical world that are inspired, compelled by their own lived experience, but being able to actually bring it in and talk about it and and share and use it as a way of normalizing and validating what someone's going through, um, that's kind of unique to the peer world. And I didn't know anything about the peer world. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know where to find it. Um, So I was shocked, blown away. It made me feel better about staying in a large organization, even though I had such mistrust when I first started of large organizations. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah. And you, you went to exactly what I was thinking of. We know that that lived experience is valuable, right? Because it helps you connect. It helps you empathize and understand someone's experience in a way that's so different from just learning about it in a book, right? Having that experience, but not everybody actually uses that 
in, in such a transparent way in their work. But I love that you're talking about how not only has that been transformative to you and the way that you practice and, and how you've come to view the work, but what that looks like in the relationships as well. Yeah, I think all of it, you know, kind of is enmeshed in that environment that how we relate to each other, you know, how we, this, this us and them attitude, or rather this kind of mutuality is really critical. One version that says, you know, I am the guide and you are the person in need of help. And the other, it says, you know, we are fellow travelers on the same journey, perhaps at different points. Um, mm-hmm. And it's from that difference in progress that we can benefit each other in a way. Yeah. Benefit each other. I like that too. It's not just you trying to benefit the other person. No. And, and I think in my own recovery journey, that was a big part because yes, by the time I got to MHA through grad school, I was probably in the best place I had been with myself, but it was taking that next step, taking on that helper role and completing the cycle, becoming part of something and feeling like I fit into a community for one of the first times. Um, that allowed me to feel comfortable staying there, if that makes sense, and never really yeah. questioned, just kind of day after day, seven years passed by and what felt like, you know, the fastest period of my life. Yeah, I know. The time does go by quickly. And it's amazing to see what you're doing with that too, and and how much you are creating community. And I mean, some people, you know, would not know this, but well, they know we've been in a pandemic for the last two years, right? So what that did to disrupt the community that you had been working so hard to build and create and sustain there. And then all of those extra efforts that you and your team made to to keep that sense of community, despite the separation and all of that, because you truly knew how important it was. Yeah. And I felt really good about how the team made that work. I mean, early on, we had everyone calling the entire community, even people they didn't work with, you know, twice a week, just going down the list, going down the list, keeping people involved, keeping them connected. Because yeah, that was my first thought. If my community closed, I would need some sense of continuity or, you know, potentially lose a lot of progress that had been made by being part of a community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's so amazing. I, I love it. And I love all of the parallels that, and I don't know if you, you know, thought about what you were going to share today and, and how that all connected, or it just sort of came out organically, but I'm thinking about that psychologist in your school, right. And that pivotal moment that you had of recognizing the power of connection and, and genuine, meaningful relationships. And I mean, we all, look, it's different when you read that in a book versus when you experience it firsthand. And so I I can't help, but I just know that that is propelling you forward in all that you do. (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely, you know, I have all of these different little motivations in my head every day. And and Peter, you know, he's definitely one of those people there. Uh, My friend who I had mentioned earlier, I, one of my peer things, you know, I, I have his picture in my office. Um, and people often ask, you know, he's, um, he's kind of covered in tats in the picture. So people often ask, you know, who is that? And, and I'll share the story as painful as it is that about my second year in grad school, um, he did passive an overdose. And it was, you know, it was a bottle of the same medication he was prescribed in high school, sitting on his desk um, with his lifeless body laying there. Yeah. Um, it was something that nearly broke me at the time, but also this 
you know, a hot iron of a reminder of why I did this work and why it meant so much to me. Because the yeah. difference between Peter and someone who just sat there and listened and he never, never thought someone needed to be fixed. He thought they needed to be heard. He thought mm-hmm. they needed to be honored. And then this doctor who spent 15 minutes a week, uh, actually every three weeks with my friend, handed him a pill bottle and watched him die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, power. I just, I have chills. And I, I'm so glad that um, that you let that fuel you and be a different kind of motivation to continue doing what you're doing. How meaningful. When I, um, when I went through his things, there was a notebook and it said, um, it said it was, I'm blanking, but it had the CBT triad behavior, cognition, emotion, you know, in a, in a little thing and a few other notes that I had remembered, you know, giving him like one of the last times we spoke and, I, and we had fought a lot about it because I was trying to you know, convince him to seek out therapy and really talking about what had helped me. Um, you know, and it, it wasn't something I necessarily wanted to hear at that time. And I really thought, you know, it was just a point of contention between us. But then I'm holding this notebook, you know, where he had that written down. And it was just another one of those moments being like, I wish I wasn't the one saying this. I wish it was the person who was empowered as his treatment provider rather than his friend because he might have listened. Yeah, right. Powerful reminder. So, Dylan. I'm interested to hear what you came up with in terms of your, your song or quote or lyric or something that has brought meaning to your experience over time. There's a song that for the last couple of years has been, you know, really close to my heart and it it does kind of relate to a lot of the more difficult things um, I've been through, but so here's the quote. Um, Nothing matters when the pain is all but gone. When you are finally awake, despite the overwhelming odds, tomorrow came. And when they see you crack a smile and you decide to stay a while, you'll be ready then to laugh again. Hmm. I it's love a song it. It's called Time Plus Tragedy by a band called Rise Against. Um, and it, it's definitely about the loss of one of his close friends. The, um, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, wow. <laughs> the lyrics seem to match so much, but knowing that it was around a shared experience is I'm sure makes it even more meaningful to you. So is there anything else that you would want to share to the listeners before we wrap up for today? I would just, I would just say, you know, there's, you know, there's mental health work, but then there's human connection in our everyday life. and, And I think there's really nothing more important than, that are natural connections. Um, and it's been a really tough couple of years. You know, there's probably mm-hmm. people we haven't heard from or spoken to, you know, check in on the people you care about. It's one of the most powerful, meaningful and, and effective things we can do. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that. Yep. Great advice. Dustin, is there anything you want to share before you sign off? I just want to say welcome to the podcast, Dylan. You know, something you said earlier as someone who's grew up in Plattsburgh, which is right across the lake from Burlington and spent a significant amount of time in Burlington. When you said you had a therapy session on top of the mountain, I'm like, there's nothing more Burlington, Vermont than that right there. (laughs) As soon as you said it, I'm like, yeah, that makes total, total sense. Who's anyone that's ever spent more than a day there. So it was funny to hear that it's like my almost adopted hometown because it's right across the, uh, the lake from us. So yeah, it's, uh, 
That's it's so funny and it's it fits so perfectly. <laughs> I love that city. <laughs> it's so oh, it's a great city. Great city. Really. Yes. I can't wait to hear when I'm I'll listen in when Lily's taking her naps. I can't wait to listen into the episodes you guys do together. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, thank you, Dylan, for sharing your story and for joining us on the podcast to uh, interview some of our upcoming guests. We want to remind everybody to find us and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. If you're listening on Apple, give us a rating and a review. I think on Spotify, you can do ratings now too, right? So wherever you can help people find us and also share with us any ideas you have about potential guests or stories that we should feature on the podcast. You can reach out to us at podcast at mhawestchester.org. So till the next time, we'll see you later. Every night some rain must fall. Learn to